You're listening to a podcast from Single Lives, an interdisciplinary conference on singleness which took place at University College Dublin on the 13th and 14th of October 2017. The conference was sponsored by UCD College of Arts and Humanities and UCD Humanities Institute, and this podcast features the keynote speaker, Rebecca Traister. Her lecture, Thornbacks to Spinsters to Welfare Queens, The Political Centrality of Unmarried Women in America, took place in the National Library of Ireland and was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Rebecca Traister was introduced by Dr. Jory Lagoway, and first by Dr. Catherine Fama from the UCD School of English, Drama and Film. Hi, good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. We're excited to be kicking off our first conference of the Single Lives Research Group at UCD. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the College of Arts and Humanities, and the Humanities Institute, and the School of English, Drama and Film for their support. I'd like to welcome you to Single Lives, 200 Years of Independent Women in Literature and Popular Culture. The conference brings together scholars exploring single women in transition, between family homes and domestic independence, household and public labor, between chastity, sexual relations, and reproduction. Singleness as an explicit identity group, a structural correspondence, a politics, an affective state, an occupancy practice, or a social and legal status has captured the popular academic and social imagination. This weekend's conference does not aim to initiate a new field of work, but to begin to explore and constellate the diverse range of scholarship already underway. To our panelists who have traveled uh, so far to join us, our fantastic panel chairs, and the graduate students who have worked to make this event possible, a huge thank you. We've had a rewarding first day of productive conversations across fields, geographies, and genres. And now to introduce our keynote speaker, Rebecca Traster, please welcome my colleague, Dr. Jory Lagerway. Hi, uh, I think Kate neglected to introduce herself. Um, so this is uh, Catherine Fama, my colleague from the UCD School of English. Uh, as she said, I'm Jory Lagerway, um, also from the School of English Drama and Film. And I have the honor of welcoming uh, you all here again and introducing tonight's speaker, Rebecca Traster. Um, so welcome again. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. Um, and we're really excited to have such a fantastic feminist writer and speaker headlining our conference. Um, Rebecca, as most of you probably know, is the best-selling author of All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation, which was a New York Times notable book of 2016. She's also a National Magazine Award finalist and winner of the Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. She is writer-at-large for New York Magazine, where she covers politics, media, and culture from a feminist perspective. She's also written for The New Republic, Salon, Elle, The Nation, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, among other publications. And her earlier book, Big Girls Don't Cry, The Election That Changed Everything for American Women, was a New York Times notable book of 2010, and the winner of the Ernesta Drinker Ballard Book Prize. And as all of these accolades show, Rebecca has built her career out of incredible feminist journalism. Most recently, she's helped explain the workings of Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein's power and why young, often unmarried women don't publicly report the kind of sexual harassment and exploitation men like Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Roger Ailes, Bill O'Reilly, and far too many others to name perpetrate. 
Her writing about this story in particular stood out to me because it resonated so clearly with all of her election and post-election reporting about Hillary Clinton, Hillary's female colleagues in Congress and elsewhere in government, the women who did and didn't vote for Hillary, and the women who did and didn't organize afterwards. These investigations into how power works, social power, political power, cultural power for American women are what make Rebecca Tracer's work such essential reading. Um, and tonight, we are very lucky. She's going to do all of that for us live. Um, she's going to tell us about the history and political heft of single women in America, in thornbacks to spinsters to welfare queens, the political centrality of unmarried women in America. So with that, please help me welcome Rebecca Tracer. Thank you all so much for coming. I want to thank Kate and Jory and the School of English Drama and Film here at UCD so much for bringing me and for hosting this remarkable conference um, on a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. I am extremely aware tonight that I'm speaking to a group of people, many of whom are academics and scholars. And I am real. I come from a family of academics, um, and I regularly cannibalize the work of academics, and that makes me extremely self-conscious about the fact that I am not an academic. I am a journalist. And I came to this topic now about six years ago, seven years ago, um, when I decided I was going to write a book about single women in the United States. Um, to some degree, I wrote about single women internationally, but it really was a book um, due to time constraints and the amount of research that I was doing that wound up being largely about the United States. Um, and I came to it as a journalist and also to a small degree as a memoirist. I was in my mid-30s, and I was found myself getting married, which was surprising to me because I had been single um, for all of my adult life, basically, until then, and really, really, really single, like a, like a nun single. I was not in and out of relationships. I was I just spent my, my 20s and my early 30s without a romantic sexual partner, um, and here I was getting married, and the sort of jolt of how people began to treat me as if my adult life was suddenly starting. And congratulations, you're starting life. And it made me incredibly irate because <laughs> um, I had I had a pretty full life. I had a very full life that I had built on my own outside of a traditional hetero or traditional romantic relationship. And um, as a reporter, uh, I knew about the rising numbers of unmarried women, the rising age of, of marriage for women in the United States and around the world. And I thought we're at a real point where culture and society is changing at a faster pace than both our cultural attitudes about the institutions that used to confine um, and define us, and certainly changing faster than our social and economic policies um, and how they behave toward women and men and men living outside of these institutions that we had relied upon and assumed were going to hold for a long time. Um, and I assumed that my book was going to be a book of contemporary journalism. I wanted to talk to women across different geographic locations, coming from different religious communities, uh, different women from different races, um, different economic levels, because I understood how class um, and economic possibility are incredibly closely tied um, to changing marriage patterns and, and what life as an unmarried woman is like. Um, and when I sold my book, I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to include a brief history of single women in the United States, which I assume is going to be largely about the Salem witch trials. And, um, <laughs> and, but mostly it's going to be I'm going to talk to women around the country um, and, and think about this in contemporary political and social terms. 
And as soon as I did about 30 seconds of historical research um, into the history of unmarried women in the United States, what I discovered was that, um, A, the Salem witchcraft trials had really nothing to do with single women. It was <laughs> literally nothing. It was mostly married women and widows um, who were tried as witches in Salem. Um, but also that this phenomenon that I had sold to my publisher is unprecedented. And it is unprecedented in terms of its, in terms of its size and scope, the number of women who are foregoing or delaying marriage. Um, and I had suggested that nothing like this had ever happened in the United States before. I was completely wrong about that. And so the, what I'm going to talk about tonight is basically take you through what I learned about the history of unmarried women in the United States, really from pre-revolutionary, from the pre-revolutionary period, um, and how the history of changing marriage patterns around women, um, around professional opportunity, economic opportunity, race, and power, um, has been a kind of shadow shaper of how our government um, and our economic policy and our social movements have been formed. And I'm going to try to take you on that path tonight in a way that makes sense. If anybody's unclear about anything that I'm talking about, please don't be shy about interrupting me or raising your hand. Um, and I also want to begin by saying that for my purposes, while of course there have always been marriages that are based on love and, and commitment and, happy that it, and happiness and, and mutual affection, I'm going to start approaching this by looking at marriage as a fundamentally, as an organizing institution, an institution that for centuries organized power, responsibility, money, sex, and it is one of the institutions that in the United States, before it was even the United States, along with the institution of slavery, is an organizing institution on which the country's power structures, its government, and its economy were built. So one of the things that marriage did um, is it created two kinds of people, the kind of person who was out in the world, who earned money, who had political power and social power, and, and that was a husband, a man, and the kind of person who did the domestic labor at home in part that enabled the other kind of person to go out in the world, the, the kind who did the raising of the children and the keeping of the house, um, and who was dependent, and, and on whom the public person, the man, was dependent in order to get that domestic work done. And then, and, and in turn, the, the wives were dependent on the men for housing, for places to live, for uh, money to, to feed families, for income. The way that this was the way that this institution worked was so fundamental um, in the colonies that, in fact, the patriarchal fa family structure was one of the organizing principles of American life. And in the 17th century, there were laws saying that families had to be well-governed by a church-going, land-owning man. In the 1650s, in New Haven, there was a decree that persons who live not in service nor in any family relation, i.e. single people, um, might become a source of inconvenience and disorder, and that each family's governor, meaning the landowning church-going man, would be licensed to, quote, duly observe the course, carriage, and behavior of every such single person. The notion that these unmarried actors would be disruptive in the world, it, that makes it sound like they're just kind of socially disruptive, like they might be making noise on the streets, which indeed they might be. <laughs> I think that was part of the fear. But attached to that was the fear that particularly an unattached woman might be disruptive to 
the power structure in other ways. And that's made really clear in the colonies because in some places, for example, in Salem, unmarried women were briefly allowed to own their own property. Now, this was this was extremely new, extremely rare, um, and it happened only briefly until the governor in Salem declared that it would be best to avoid all precedents and evil events of granting lots unto maidens, unto single maidens not disposed of. And one of the reasons that he changed his mind on this is because there began to be some anxiety about if women owned property, they might vote. And this, of course, there's a rich history of this. In England, the, the first female voters were single women who could also own property. That was one of the key um, prerequisites for being able to vote. And in the 1640s, uh, in Maryland, the first woman property owner, a woman named Margaret Brent, petitioned for two votes. So the fear was that if you have these women who are outside of marriage, they need to have somewhere to live, and they have the money to purchase their own property, then they would have a civic call on enfranchisement. And so very quickly, the colonies stopped permitting it. In 1634, there was a bill introduced at the House of Delegates in Maryland proposing that land owned by a spinster must be forfeited should she fail to marry within seven years. The term spinster itself, I'm sure people who are in this room already know this, derived from the 13th century term uh, spinner, which referred to women um, and many women who were orphan, widows and orphans of the Crusades who spun textiles, literally spun, uh, to earn wages. In the 16th century, it came to refer to unmarried women. And in the New World, it took on a much more precise meaning. Um, spinster referred to women who were unmarried after the age of 23, but only until they were 26. Because at 26, they became known, if they were still unmarried, they became known as thornbacks. And a thornback is a reference to a seascate with spines all over its back. And it was not a compliment. Um, in 1686, a Boston bookseller named John Dunton wrote that an old or superannuated maid in Boston is thought such a curse as nothing can exceed it and looked on as a dismal spectacle. Um, but in fact, in the New World, spinsters and thornbacks were pretty rare. It was um, colonists were there. They felt they had an enormous responsibility to populate this new land. Um, ben Franklin wrote in 1755 that marriages in America are more general and more generally early than in Europe. And there was an English visitor who in the late 18th century noted that that great curiosity, the old maid, the most calamitous creature in nature is seldom seen in this country. That was even more true in the southern colonies, um, which were more agricultural and therefore had a bigger imbalance of men to women. There were many more men in the southern colonies than women, and that's a gender ratio that actually drives marriage rates up and marriage ages down. Uh, so that by the 18th century, Virginia's white women were often married as young as 12. Marital law in the United States was drawn from English common law and something called coverture. I don't know if everybody here is familiar with the laws of coverture, but they basically suggest that when a man and a woman married, the woman's legal identity was covered, literally covered, a femme couverte, covered by the man's identity. And this is from Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England, describing how, that, how the laws of coverture would work. The very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage 
or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband, under whose wing, protection, and cover she performs everything. A man cannot grant anything to his wife or enter into covenant with her, for the grant would suppose her separate existence, and to covenant with her would be only to covenant with himself. So it's it's a slightly shocking concept that this was written into to, uh, law. But in fact, the remnants are with, it, are with us today, and it's always surprising to American audiences to be reminded that it wasn't until 1974's Equal Credit Opportunity Act um, that a woman could get a credit card, a married woman could get a credit card, loan, or mortgage without her husband's signature, and that in the United States, marital rape was still legal deep into the 1970s. And even every once in a while, you still find a marital rape law just being overturned, you know, in some district court in Idaho. The marital rape, I mean, the assumption that a man could simply have sex at any time with his wife persisted deep into the 1970s and later in the United States. Um, During the period of revolution and the break from England, um, there were many women who began to notice that these marital laws seemed at odds with the Enlightenment notions of individual liberty that were undergirding not only the American Revolution, but then the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution. Um, And some of them were public about it. In 1794, Massachusetts Magazine published a poem called Lines Written by a Lady Who Was Questioned Respecting Her Inclination to Marry. And this is what the poem was in 1794. At Liberty's Spring, such drafts I've imbibed that I hate all the doctrines by wedlock prescribed. Its law of obedience could never suit me. My spirit's too lofty. My thoughts are too free. Round freedom's fair standard, I've rallied and paid a vow of allegiance to die an old maid. So there was already this sentiment and acknowledgement of how, wait, if we're talking about liberty, if we're talking about liberty as a nation, it's incredibly at odds with the customs into which, you know, the inhabitants of these of this nation are, are going to be led. Of course, the other institution that was wholly at odds with the Enlightenment sentiments around liberty um, at the time of the revolution was slavery. And it's worth thinking about how marriage law was enforced in a slave state because officially it was marriage was prohibited. Um, enslaved people were not did not have their marriages recognized, though, of course, they married each other all the time. Those marriages were not legally or religiously recognized, and that's for a couple of reasons. Um, in part, slave owners wanted to prevent the formation of respectable unions, um, and in part, in turn, that's because they wanted to continue a very common practice in which uh, enslaved women were raped, often by their owners or members of their owners' families. And while the rape wasn't the problem, the idea of violating a marriage bond or a religious bond was more problematic. Um, But at the same time, marriage was also forced on enslaved people, often in some cases, by their owners. And that was for a couple of reasons, either because slave owners wanted slaves to marry and produce more enslaved children, Um, and in some cases because they wanted to create and force familial bonds that they thought might discourage enslaved people from running away. And so very famously, Harriet Jacobs, the former slave who is the author of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, writes about wanting to marry a freedman and having her owner forbid her from doing so and instead trying to force her to marry another of his 
another slave. And she says to him, don't you suppose, sir, that a slave can have some preference about marrying? Um, and the laws around marriage, both prohibiting it and enforcing it, are a big clue um, as to how intimately entwined, something I didn't understand when I started this project, how intimately entwined marriage practices and customs and laws are with the enforcement of state power. Um, And interestingly, and this becomes important later in the history, after the Civil War, post-emancipation, for a variety of reasons, including that suddenly formerly enslaved people are free to marry, and also because marriage then begets tax breaks, actual economic benefits, um, and also higher degrees of social acceptability for recently enslaved, newly freed people who are trying to find a foothold um, in, in a post-emancipation world. Merit, black marriage rates skyrocket and go way up, way above white marriage rates in the years after the Civil War. Um, <clears throat> but in the same period, in fact, even before the Civil War, starting in the early 19th century, white marriage rates, and specifically marriage rates for white middle-class women, are in fact going down for a couple of reasons. One is that a huge number of men are moving west as part of westward exploration, leaving this kind of weird, like a high school gym where women are on one side and and men are on the other. Um, And there's also eventually the toll of the Civil War, in which so many men are killed. And it's so bad, this this division of the country for white middle-class Americans that in 1865, the governor of Massachusetts actually suggests the transport of 30,000 surplus women to Oregon and California, where there are no wives. So there are all these surplus women, and this is the era of the cult of domesticity in which women's highest calling is not only to be maternal, but also to to make the home a place of moral uplift and respite. Um, And for all these women who don't have traditional homes or children to pass on democratic virtue to or to be morally responsible for, there has to be a new imaginative place for these unmarried women to fit as their numbers grow on the East Coast. And so there's a whole line of thinking that is developed in these sort of mid-19th century years in which the number of unmarried women is rising, especially on the East Coast. There is what's called, what historians now call the cult of single blessedness, And it's a view of single women as pure, pious vessels, so still sort of in line with what you ideally want your traditional white middle-class femininity to entail, Um, and that their energies, especially their moral and domestic energies, are useful precisely because they're not distracted by husbands or children and can therefore be refocused on serving God and the greater community. And it's a really bleak sort of view of... What you do with what you should be doing with these energies if they're not being put in use in service to your husband and your children. Um, there's a preacher called George Burnap um, who called single women a corps de reserve and wrote and, and gave this in a sermon just as no wise general brings all his forces into the field at once but keeps back a part, a part to supply deficiencies, so are unmarried women stationed. And his view of what these unmarried women should be doing in these years is that while couples are out enjoying the pleasures of life, The single women should be, quote, toiling over those household duties which the gay and thoughtless have forgotten or watching by the bedside of pain and death. Um, (laughs) Take that, single ladies. 
<laughs> Basically, the view of women in every circumstance is that they should be doing the shit work. They should be caring for the wounded and the ill and the young. And if you're not doing that as a mother or a wife, well, then you better be doing it as a single woman working within your community. But during these, eight, these 19th century years, there's also an increasing awareness that to be a wife entailed a lot of this shit work, too. Um, there was this, the, the tolls of wifeliness, including the reality of marital rape, the danger at that, in that period of childbirth, which was very real, the, un, the lack of availability of any kind of birth control meant that women were having multiple pregnancies that were very dangerous without the benefit of modern medicine. Um, and then, of course, there was the awareness of the diminishment of liberty. And so you begin to get really public now named critics, people who, women who have writing voices or public voices, um, who are active critics of marriage. One of the most famous is Louisa May Alcott, the author of Little Women, most famously. And she, from the time she was young, swore she would never get married. Marriage was not an institution for her. And she wrote very famously um, all kinds of critiques about marriage. She said, liberty is a better husband than love to many of us. Um, she also argued that the loss of liberty happiness and self-respect is poorly repaid by the barren honor of being called Mrs. instead of Miss. Um, but her enthusiasm for the single life, which she maintained, she actually was able to support herself. She lived on her own, in fact, supported her family, including her father, who never did very well for himself economically. Um, she managed to do that, but it was, a, it was very rare um, that a woman could comfortably live outside of marriage. And for Louise May Alcott, it wasn't particularly comfortable. She held about 15 jobs. She was a writer and a published writer, though she couldn't have made her living from it. She was a teacher, a seamstress. She picked hops. She did, you know, she had to do 15 jobs in order to be able to pay for her own place to live and then to support her family. Um, there simply weren't educational opportunities or professions open to women in that period that paid enough to be able to support themselves. But in fact, this was all happening in a period where that was changing. There was a shift from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy in the 19th century. And one of the things that came out of that was that there were this population of children who were no longer working in fields, and they had to be educated. And they moved into schools, and you needed somebody to teach them. And so in fact, some of these, the, the most famously, a woman named Catherine Beecher, a pioneer in education, um, who was herself a lifelong unmarried women, woman, made the argument that the profession of teaching was particularly suitable for unmarried women, in part because it engaged some of the same skills that we associated with femininity, the passing on of moral virtues and, you know, and learning to children. Um, and in part, and, and people argued this, single women didn't have to make very much money because they didn't have anybody to support. And so you could actually, you could make the profession of teaching a low-paid profession and women could enter it because you wouldn't really have to pay them that much. Um, the other profession that was opening up in those years, in part during the Crimean and then during the Civil War, was the profession of nursing. And again, that was work that mirrored traditionally feminine responsibilities, tending to the wounded, being a caretaker. But the women who were pioneers in that profession, Clara Barton, Florence Nightingale, were also lifelong single women. I mean, you can begin to see the trail of unmarried women um, as these professions begin to open up. 
The other thing that was happening is that during the Industrial Revolution, you have the creation of mills and factories. And who staffs? Who's, who are the workers in those mills and factories? They are young women, um, women who are working in advance of getting married, some of them working and earning wages and perhaps postponing marriage because they're, they're earning wages. And so you have towns like Lowell, Massachusetts, where there are the textile mills. And there are so many young unmarried women in those towns that they become their own um, civic and semi-urban settings. Um, it's also a period of religious revivals where women are meeting each other um, and, you know, in, in, in revival meetings and coming into contact with each other, comparing notes, beginning to create networks, sharing political ideas and ideas about social change. And so in these various places, in factories, in schools, in religious communities, you have women who in previous generations were cloistered in homes where the burdens of wifeliness, wifely responsibility and maternal responsibility would have kept them separated from each other suddenly having these new kinds of opportunities to come together and work together. And what begins to happen is that these women begin to form networks that are deeply engaged with changing the power structures around them. And this is, this is a take on it from a young woman named Betsy who lived in Lowell and worked at the mills. And in 1840, she writes in the Lowell paper, that she is one of that unlucky, derided, and almost despised set of females called spinsters. And she argues that it is a part of God's wise design that there should be old maids, in part because they are the founders and pillars of anti-slavery, moral reform, and all sorts of religious and charitable societies. So you see, it's like the punchline here is that the encouragement of women to do all these, to tend to the sick, to teach the children, to get involved in moral and religious societies, puts them in touch with each other in ways that then begin to work as part of these social movements to upend the power structures. Um, so if you look at the history of 19th century activists, starting in the abolition movement, moving through suffrage, the temperance movement, later the labor movement, the settlement house movement, which is where a lot of progressive economic policy was developed, you see people like Susan B. Anthony, who was never married, like Louisa May Alcott. She always said she would never marry from the time she was a child. Sarah Grimke, the abolitionist, who was never married. Her sister, Angelina Grimke, who was, who was married but married late, only after she'd already established herself as a public advocate. Um, later in suffrage, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, never married. Jane Addams, a settlement house leader, never married. Frances Willard, never married. Ida B. Wells, married late after she had already become deeply involved in the suffrage and anti-lynching movements. And in fact, when she did marry, it caused friction between her and Susan B. Anthony. And Ida B. Wells writes about how Susan B. Anthony used to scoff at her and only call her by her married name. She clearly really resented that Ida B. Wells had gotten married. <laughs> when the abolitionist and suffragist Lucy Stone married Harry Blackwell in 1855, they actually distributed a public statement that read in part... While acknowledging our mutual affections by publicly assuming the relationship of husband and wife, this act on our part implies no sanction of nor promise of voluntary obedience to such of the present laws of marriage as refuse to recognize the wife as an independent, rational being, while they confer upon the husband an injurious and unnatural superiority. So the social movements are operating in part in conscious recognition of the inequities of marriage. And and in some small ways, beginning to connect it to the inequities of slavery, of disenfranchisement, 
even the married activists, and I, I say this only because this is a very funny line, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who is a suffragist, and was like married. She was married with five children, <laughs> very traditionally. But even the married activists understood the tolls that marriage was taking, uh, taking. And she once wrote to Susan B. Anthony, who was her professional partner, and she hadn't heard from Susan B. Anthony in a while. And she wrote her a note that said, where are you, Susan, dead or married? <laughs> so the rate of spinster hit, spinsterhood actually hits its first peak, which was 11% for women born between 1865 and 1875. So it's the end of the 19th century that the highest number, of, until the end of the 20th century, you see the highest rate of unmarried women. And it is also during that period that the women who are unmarried, both through these social movements and then through other activities, largely education, the expansion of professions, are creating a path that... 10 years later, and then 100 years later, is going to create an opportunity for more women to live singly, should, they, should circumstances take them that way or should they choose to live singly. So, for example, these are also the years in which women and often single women are opening col the first colleges for women. <coughs> the women's colleges, Bryn Mawr, Smith, and Wellesley, open in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. Spelman, the historically black college for women, opens in 1881. And people begin, some of these women begin to make arguments about economic and social policy. Virginia Penny, who is a teacher, in 1869 writes a book called Think and Act. And she starts writing about income inequality um, for women who are living outside of marriage. She wanted equal pay protections, which I hasten to add we still want in the United States. Um, and she also offered suggestions, including taxing better compensated single men to help support unmarried women. So these women are beginning to look at the structural obstacles to, looking outside, to living outside of marriage. So, okay, they're living singly. They're making social change. But what is the government's responsibility to address the barriers to, to actual economic, social, and political independence? Uh, also in 1869, Aurora Phelps of the Boston Working Women's League petitioned for something that she called garden homesteads, which were government-subsidized tracts of land near Boston that she argued should be given to unmarried women who were willing to work them. And it was a kind of East Coast equivalent to the land that was being given away largely to men as part of the Homestead Act in the West. Um, none of these ideas obviously went anywhere. I mean, for God's sakes, really, truly, we're still trying to get equal pay protections. Um, but the idea that these were being put out there is suggests that there was a real structural view of inequality um, with regard to unmarried women taking shape. Then, of course, you get the beginning of the labor movement. And the beginnings of the labor movement actually start, by many measures, with unmarried women. The very first walkouts were at the Lowell factories, the young women um, in Lowell who staged walkouts. The 1909 Upright, uprising of shirtwaist factory workers in New York City was led by young women, many of them unmarried. Um, that, by the way, the 1909 strike was a very successful early strike, and almost every shirtwaist manufacturer in New York City agreed to the terms set by the strikers, except for the Triangle Shirtwaist um, Company, where in 1911, 146 workers, all but 17 of them women and almost all of them unmarried, would die in a fire. In teacher unionism, too, unmarried women were leaders. Margaret Haley, who was a Chicago teachers union leader, um, was a unmar lifelong unmarried woman. 
um, referred to actually in the Chicago press as a nasty woman, a nasty unladylike woman. She was a real revolutionary, and she was the first one to come and argue against that the Catherine Beecher argument that that single women could be paid less as teachers. And she looked at a census and said, no, single women are supporting their families, their siblings, their parents in some cases. They should not be paid less. And she argued for higher wages for teachers based on census data saying, no, no, no. These women have dependents, too, even if they're not traditionally, if they're not child dependents. Um, and she also made this really crucial move of joining her 97% female union to the blue-collar Chicago Federation of Labor. And that's basically the creation of contemporary teacher unionism, which is a massive political force in the United States and in United States politics. Um, and that, in part, is thanks to Margaret Haley. That labor fight then got tied to the re-energized suffrage fight. The suffrage fight, of course, lasted for nearly 100 years, um, 80 years uh, at least, by, by many measures longer than that. And in the early 20th century, the suffrage fight got re-energized in part um, because of more radical approaches that had been imported from England. And Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, single women who were sort of professional political partners, um, kind of led it to its revolutionary conclusion. And in 1920, there was the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So we're about to be 100 years in the United States with women being allowed to vote. Yay. Um, <laughs> so if you consider unmarried women as serious drivers of some of these social movements, which I think there's every reason to, um, that played out during the 19th and early 20th century, um, you're seeing a population of women who lived outside of traditional marriage and who literally reshaped the United States Constitution, the 14th, 15th, 18th, 19th Amendments, which is probably why in the early 20th century there was such a massive backlash against them. So in those years, as the labor movement has taken shape in the backlash to Reconstruction era, um, progress for African Americans in response to the 19th Amendment and women being able to vote. What you have is a whole set of cultural, political, and medical messages that are sent directly at the most visible symbols of this kind of disruption of the power structure. The most visible symbols are middle class white women because of their closer proximity to economic power and to social power. And because of their, because they were entering professions, making more money, um, in some ways more competitive with their white male peers, um, a lot of the backlash towards single women was directed straight at them as the symbols of everything that was wrong. So you start getting popular press messages aimed directly at them, re-encouraging them to marry and mate early. This is when we have the invention of dating as a kind of concept um, put forth in women's magazines um, and also messages about how you shouldn't just be marrying, you should be marrying early. You should be dating early. That begins right around the time that women gain, gain the right to vote. You also have messages coming from politicians, including Teddy Roosevelt, who gave a whole series of speeches about race suicide, in which his main argument was that white middle-class women and men, but he was talking about women, who were not marrying and failing to reproduce, were doing harm to the nation by failing to carry on the white race. A race is worthless, 
he railed, if women ceased to breed freely. And then with the straight-up racism, pauper families with excessive numbers of ill-nourished and badly brought-up children voluntar- and, and was complaining also about voluntary sterility among married men and women of good life. If the best classes do not reproduce themselves, the nation will, of course, go down. Those are messages aimed directly at the kind of middle-class white women who had been the public faces, though obviously it wasn't just middle-class white women who were, who were organizing and, and participating in the social movements. They were the most public symbols of those social movements, and also the ones who were entering the professions getting expensive educations. The medical establishment, both in the United States and in Europe, were also, also suddenly decided to send a lot of um, negative messages toward women who were not entering early hetero marriages. This is around the period that lesbianism gets classified not only as an identity, but as a sexual perversion. Um, and Wilhelm Steckel in 1926 publishes an article called Frigidity in Women, um, in which he argues that marriage dread and aversion to childbearing afflict particularly our higher circles. Increasing numbers of girls belonging to the upper strata remain single. They are emancipated. They are growing self-reliant, self-sufficient, and economically, too, they are becoming more and more independent of the male. And so with an eye to that, doctors begin warning about women whose ovaries are not regularly bathed in semen. Those ovaries would dry up. And that's in the 1920s, 1930s. And here is the thing that really surprised me. I had grown up learning United States history and understanding the kind of white middle class repression of the 1950s as happening in reaction to both the Depression and World War II. Reading this history and reading about that anxiety and the arguments that were being made by doctors, um, that were being made by politicians about the impact of women living outside of marriage, and specifically about white middle-class women living outside of marriage. I began to rethink what that mid-20th century building of a white middle-class was about. So after World War II, because I increasingly think it's about, in part, reaction and attempt to put those white middle-class women back in an early hetero-married box. So you look at the kinds of things that went into the formation the New Deal policies in the 1930s, and then the post-war policies. Um, the GI Bill that sent returning students, white returning students, to college after their service. The subsidization of the suburbs in the United States. The intense messaging to women at that point in the 1950s and early 1960s that they were to marry early had an incredible impact on white middle-class women. By 1960, around 60% of female students, 60% were dropping out of the colleges that had only recently been opened for them um, to marry. Nearly half of brides in 1960 were younger than 19. So this is a total reverse for white middle-class women from the, the high, the unmarried high at the end of the 19th century. Um, at Barnard, if you... Uh, were engaged when you graduated, you got a corsage, and if you were not, you were handed a lemon. But the other thing that was happening in tandem with this was that the exact opposite set of supports and messages were being sent to black families. So I mentioned before that rates of marriage um, for black families skyrocket after emancipation, and they stayed higher than marriage rates, and the marriage ages stayed lower for black families 
after emancipation into the middle of the 20th century than they were for, for white families. But think about all of those policies, the government, the way that the government was contributing to the development of a middle class and who that middle class was for. Um, it started, obviously, with New Deal policies like Social Security, which left out agricultural workers and domestic workers, who tended, of course, to be African-American or Mexican and Asian immigrants. Um, the New Deal helped to strengthen unions in the United States. But unions had very bad racial politics, many of them, and there was a low percentage of black workers in those unions. There was a racial wage gap, which got wider. Returning black servicemen could not take advantage of the GI Bill, in part because colleges wouldn't admit them, in part because they didn't have the kind of economic security to be able to take four years out of a workforce to get an undergraduate degree. The creation of those suburbs, um, and this is something that ta Coates and the historian Tom Sugru had written about really beautifully, the creation of those suburbs was explicitly the creation of white domestic housing, subsidized domestic housing. The massive Levitt towns in the United States in the United States were, they did not permit black residents. They were exclusively for white residents. At the same time, mortgage companies refused to give mortgages to black families. And if they did, gave them loans at usurious rates. Um, the highways that the government subsidized and built to, to transport the white middle-class men who were participating in this revivified economy out to their new subsidized housing developments in the suburbs, those highways cut off black neighborhoods from public transportation, from jobs. So what the government was doing was sending all of these resources to a white middle class in part to recreate an early marriage model that would suppress white middle class women. And at the same time, cutting off black families from the kinds of resources or economic and social policy supports that would permit black families to have to cre create those patriarchal family structures themselves. If you were cut off from good schools in a period where segregation was permitted, because this was also, of course, the Jim Crow era. If you were cut off from jobs and transportation, if you could not afford a home and you had nobody subsidizing this home, it was very hard to have that Norman Rockwell, you know, dad works, mom stays at home with the kids. And the government was creating policies that actively cut off its black population from the very resources that were kind of creating a tomb for middle-class white women. And black marriage rates went down. In the years, late 40s and early 1950s, black marriage rates fell below white marriage rates. White marriage rates soared, and, and marriage ages were very low for white families. And so what you get out of this, it's not just an accident. Like, it actually, it works. They do it. <laughs> and what you get, you can see the evidence of it in the early 60s, because in 1963, Betty Friedan publishes The Feminine Mystique, which is that explosion out of that white middle class suburban repressive life for women. And two years later, in 1965, you get the Moynihan Report, which diagnoses black poverty as originating with women-led families, with single women. So, how'd I do on that? I'm not, done, I'm not quite done yet. Um, out of that moment, of course, you get, you get the explosive social movements of the mid to late 20th century, um, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the black power movement, the gay rights movement. Um, you have pieces of government legislation, which have, many of which have now been gutted or are in the process of being gutted, the Voting Rights Act, um, Roe versus Wade, 
the legalization of contraception, uh, which, by the way, is fascinating. Um, the legalization of contraception in the United States was first made legal for married people in 1965 and for single people not until 1972. And that was a landmark case. The idea that single people were legally permitted to use birth control in 1972 was sort of a big part of acknowledging that unmarried people were people who might have sex lives. Um, <clears throat> the invention of the pill, the and of course the pill, abortion, um, the sexual revolution creates a whole new set of incentives for people to perhaps not marry and settle down in their early adulthood in the pattern that had always been necessitated in part by the fact that women didn't have reproductive control over their own bodies. So at the moment, uh, 20% of Americans aged 18 to 29 are married. That is compared to 60% in 1960. So that is a massive, just 60% versus 20%. Um, 46% of adults under 34 have never been married. Half of first births to women under 30 are now outside of marriage. These are all United States statistics. Um, and this is, a, this is a massive revolutionary change. And even if when I went into this project, I didn't understand the history that had gotten us here, one of the things that has become apparent to me is that those on the right, I approach this from the left, <laughs> that those on the right do understand the implications of this. And that so much of the political and social pressure that we get in the United States on the right is about trying to reverse this for any number of reasons. Because women and men living outside of that traditional structure and that organizational structure, the thing that organized power and responsibility and money and sex, means that new kinds of power are on offer to different kinds of people. And also that the government has to change the way that it supports those people. That is really obvious to, a, to the right. And it's even obvious in terms of the way people vote. Single women vote left. And the right knows this. In the United States, right-wing politicians talk all the time in a derogatory way about single women voters. They call, In the last election cycle, they were called Beyonce voters. Um, they talk about, and, and in fact, right-wing radio hosts and television stars said, oh yeah, they depend on Uncle Sam for their free birth control. This is what Rush Limbaugh talked about with regard um, to, to the birth control fight. And oh yeah, women just want, just want Uncle Sam or Barack Obama to hand them their birth control pills for every time they have sex. There's, a, there's an incredible narrative around women just want to depend on their government so they can have their libertine sex lives. Um, but it also goes to higher and weirder levels. Like when Mitt Romney was running against Barack Obama in 2012, there was a debate in which somebody asked, how do you stem the tide of gun violence in America? And Mitt Romney's response was, you should tell people that they should marry someone. His response, the, the right-wing answer to everything, how do you, how, what do we do about poverty? People need to get married. The Bush administration poured billions of dollars. And by the way, these programs were continued in some cases by the Obama administration. Billions of dollars into marriage education projects, trying to get Americans to marry early. You, if you ask anybody on the right of the political spectrum you know, about poverty, the belief is that poverty is intimately connected to people living singly and to people not marrying at the same rates that they used to. There's actually no evidence that that's the case. The correlations are much more complicated, and we can talk about that if you want to in the questions. Um, 
And I was very hopeful going into the 2016 election. Unmarried women in the United States now make up a quarter of the electorate. And I was extremely hopeful that they would be one of the deciding factors in the election. And they, in fact, voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, um, 63 to 32, the biggest margin of any broken down by um, marital status of of any group. Um, But it obviously wasn't enough. And one of the things that I hope that the sort of tour through history and the connections between social change, power, economic policy um, makes clear is that one of the things that's at stake um, in the United States and everywhere in this country is going to have an abortion referendum in 2018. The kinds of laws that we pass, the kinds of protections um, we, we write into law, the kinds of protections that can be overturned, um, as we're seeing happen in the United States all over the place, um, they are intimately connected to how people can live and the kind of liberty and opportunity that's available to them. And so one of the reasons that these that elections matter and that government policy matters with regard to questions that you might think have nothing to do with these things, like, am I going to meet someone and get married and fall in love? And am I going to have kids and what kind of family am I going to have? Am I going to have a family? Actually, the connection between those things is really strong. And there are mechanisms, even though this is a massive tide, a massive tide away from traditional early hetero marriage that we have seen taking place really over about the past 30 or 40 years in the United States and around the world, because this pattern is happening in European countries, in Asia, in Africa. Um, we, it can be turned back. If you enact policies, if you keep women from controlling their reproduction, if you remove workplace protections, protections against sexual harassment, hiring discrimination, firing discrimination, if you do not, as we do not in the United States, offer them paid leave, if you do not offer them the possibility of taking paid sick days, which we also don't do in the United States, you can make them dependent on men again. This is something that can be engineered by a government. If you do not treat women as full human beings and citizens, you can recreate conditions in which early marriage again becomes the confining norm. And that is clearly what political actors all over the world are anxious to do at the moment. And so that's why this history, which I myself did not know until a few years ago when I started to, and that I think it's odd that I didn't know. That's why some of this stuff matters and why it's important and why conversations about single women aren't just like sort of about sex in the city or Lena Dunham or whatever. (laughs) That, That this is about the way countries are built and how power is organized. And so that is my brief tour through American history and single women. Uh, thank you very much for a brilliant talk. Um, we have some time for questions. Hi, I wanted to pick up you sort of invited questions about poverty yeah. and and um, late marriage or singleness. And I guess 
I'm curious more about that because it seems so clear to me that at least autonomous living, that in a variety of ways, including like tax breaks for marriage, right. um, marriage is financially incentivized and singleness, despite the fact that a one-bedroom apartment costs the same amount regardless of how many people are in the bedroom right. or your hotel electric rooms, bill, hotel rooms. Of, yeah. There are many, many... You can't buy food in bulk if you can't consume. Right. The, I mean, right. you can, but it'll right. go bad. You're not saving money. Right. Um, so it seems so clear to me that singleness can cause poverty on the individual single worker, particularly for women operating at 79 cents to the dollar, whatever the last number is. Right. And so I'm just wondering if you could expand more on kind of how that sets up. And I'm, of course, coming at it from the other right from the opposite direction. So your argument is what is the right-wing argument about how marriage would cure poverty? I can see lots of ways that marriage could cure poverty for like middle-class women falling into poverty as single earners in a household. The idea, the right-wing argument, and somebody here might be able to better, somebody who, maybe there's somebody here who agrees with it, who could better <laughs> express it. But the argument is, it's a very simple one. If you marry early and you have two incomes, um, conservative thinkers, even those who are interested in single life, right? There's a whole bunch of people who are theoretically kind of in the middle, almost libertarian thinkers. Um, and those people all the way to the right talk about something called the success sequence, which is going to school, getting your degree, getting married, having children. And if everybody did that, poverty would not exist. And the idea there is you'd have your education, right? You don't want to, you know, you don't want to have any early sex that might you know, produce children out of wedlock. Um, and you'd have your, you get your education and you have a two earner family, right? And this is, this is real, right? The, the, in theory, the two earner partnership is necessary in an economy where so many are disadvantaged, right? And it's a huge boon. There's no question about that. Um, it is especially, there's so much marriage inequality right now because the people who still tend to get married most often are the wealthiest and most educated who already have the highest incomes, and then those incomes combine. And so it just sort of doubles their privilege, right? So the anxiety about living on single incomes is not made up, but in part... What those on the right would argue is that, great, you can solve that if you just partner up into these, into these double-income units. But what that doesn't take into account is a million things, including that you might not find another income that you want to marry and with whom you would have a happy marriage. <laughs> and that that is especially true, perhaps, in communities that are re already impoverished communities where the rates of unemployment are extremely high and the idea of finding a partner doesn't necessarily include finding a partner with another income. Um, they might, in areas where there are, or for people at any income level, whose partners, you know, where partnership might entail um, emotional and logistical tolls, the kind of labor of doing work for another person, you know, for, for a partner. There's no guarantee that a marriage is going to provide emotional or economic stability. And the whole idea behind this wonderful, yes, it'd be terrific if we all could marry and fall in love. It doesn't take into account the fact that hum not all human beings want to find monogamous commitment or would be made happy by that. So you might have your other income, but be personally miserable because you don't love the person you met when you were 22, when you're doing your next step on the success sequence. Um, you know, that, that things that come 
with racial discrimination, um, which of course is tied to economic and social inequality, mean that there are communities where there aren't men. The, the number of black men incarcerated in the United States is massive. There are entire communities where that gender ratio I talked about from white men moving west in the 19th century, that ratio is incredibly screwed up in black communities in the United States because of the high rate of incarceration of black men. So great, you're in your community and there are high rates of incarceration because of racist policing practices in the United States. Um, there are high rates of unemployment. There are high rates of drug addiction, high rates of depression, high rates of domestic violence, all things associated with poverty to begin with. So the idea that you can cure poverty by just having people marry, it, it's not, marriage is not, people talk about marriage as if it is a thing where you're happy, happy, and there are two people who meet each other, fall in love, and they're married, and then they're married. But we all know from our lives, from sex, from love, from unrequited love, from our families, from our friendships, that that's not how relationships, that's not how life works. And one of the, the, the thing that I argue, and I think that many on the left agree with, is that in part, ironically, you can pour all this money, everybody agrees, you poured billions of dollars into marriage education programs, starting with the Bush administration, into the Obama administration. Marriage rates did not change. They still are going down. They did nothing. It did nothing. The things that actually have boosted marriage rates are a couple of accidental experiments. Because, of course, in the United States, what we're doing is taking away the safety net, reducing welfare and SNAP benefits, reducing everything that should be necessary for people to have economic stability, regardless of whether or not they're married. But there were a couple of instances, including one program in Wisconsin, where people continued to get welfare benefits even after they'd gone back to work. And in that, it was an accident. It was like a clerical error where people kept getting checks in addition to the, to the checks they were getting with their jobs. In that community, marriage rates stabilized. The divorce rate went down, and I believe the marriage rate actually went up during the period where that was happening. There is actual evidence that if you made people more economically stable, marriage rates could go up because partnerships could become more practical. And, and, you know, if you, if you had economic stability to begin with, it takes away a lot of the stresses on human relationships that can make marriage perilous and not necessarily good for you or your economic or emotional or logistical stability. So um, one of the things I wanted to come back to was your last comment um, in your, your actual talk <laughs> um, about this is the way the country is built. And one of the statistics I found fascinating in your book was that 30% of Latinas in America right now are single. Mm because we know from family life and so on and so forth that that's not what's supposed to happen, right? And Gloria Ansaldua told us a long time ago that it's not just queer Chicanas who might be kicked out of the family, but if you are an unmarried mm -hmm. Chicana, you risk all kinds of problems. So one of the things I was really interested in was in your book, I kept looking for what happened to these 30% Latinas, but I didn't see more stories about them except about Pamela, the one brown mom with the dog and the baby. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered, if that's because if you begin to go down that route, it's a really tricky route. Or if it was just like, okay, the book is this long, I have to give it to the editor. So that, that was my question. Well, to some degree, the question about what happens is unanswered. This stuff is really new. So one of the... Um, I don't have the answer about what happens to Latina, to that 30% of Latina women. Um, 
in part, this stuff is still playing out. And the statistical questions about, okay, so at this point, you get this snapshot, this percentage of people are unmarried. And every once in a while, you see a newspaper story that says, oh, all these unmarried women, 80% of them eventually wind up married. But this is something that's unfolding so contemporaneously that we don't yet know. Like, sure, that was true of the women who were unmarried 10 years ago. Now we can say 80% of them are married. But we actually don't know about the women who are unmarried right now. I mean, because this happens over the course of a lifetime. So... I don't know the answer to the question about what happens specifically to the 30% of Latino women. I do, one of the things that I did want to convey in the book is that, the, that racial, ethnic, and religious backgrounds complicate this a lot. And in Latina and often heavily Catholic uh, communities, and there, there are lots of actually religious communities that have these same kind of pressures applied to the women who are living these new kinds of lives, you see real political fights, real political and religious fights. And um, actually, Carmen in the book, too, um, talks about that. And her mother, who had been married, I, I can't remember the number of years. I should, I should have it in front of me. Um, her mother, who had stayed married to her father and hated being married and just wanted her daughters, like saved all her money, couldn't leave her father, who, who was abusive, um, and wanted to convey to her daughters. And that was, a, that was a family in which a Latina attitude about I have to stay married to him both because I'm dependent on him and because <laughs> um, was transmuted into like a desire for her daughters to live a totally different life. So you see things, it's messy, right? Um, and so I don't think there's any clear answer at the moment. Um, and I think that, and, and there is also a degree of the book had to be finished. So there are a million different roads that I would have liked to have gone down and done more exploration on that I didn't, um, because I couldn't. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. It was um, uh, fascinating. I really enjoyed your book as well. Um, so given that you were kind of new to the research and as you were going down um, the kind of research trail, I wanted to know if you thought if you were surprised by the way in which um, black women and white women voted for Trump versus Clinton in the United States. And so you talked a little bit about the, um, the breakdown versus married and single, how they mm -hmm. voted. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the percentages of black women who voted versus white women. Yes. So the answer as far as whether I was surprised was that, no, I was not surprised. I had wanted to be surprised. I had hoped that I was going to be surprised. I had hoped. When you look at that breakdown, to, to go backwards slightly, whenever you read stories about single women vote left, single women vote for Democrats consistently by these huge numbers. In fact, the percentage was even bigger for Romney versus Obama. Um, it was for single women. It was... Uh, 67 to 31% for Obama. And lots of people, there's a sort of, I always wondered, because white women, white women vote Republican. White women consistently vote Republican. And um, there's a lot of speculation about why, and I have lots of ideas about why. Um, but that single number, single women number, I've always wondered until I started writing the book and actually sort of started seeking out answers, like, is that just because that single number, it's still wealthy white women who are most likely to be married to begin with. 
So is that single number reflected of the fact that these women are mostly young, that many of them are women of color who are more likely to be unmarried, so that in fact it's age and race that's determining that big percentage of single women voting for Democrats. And so I went to pollsters when I was writing this book and said, what about single white women specifically? Like, is there a difference? And there is a difference. Single white women vote Democratic by a smaller percentage. And I actually finally just got numbers on that for this election, which were very hard to come by. Um, 59% of never married white women did vote for Clinton, which is still kind of piss poor. But (laughs) (laughs) so... The the basic answer to your question is that 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. Yes. 53% voted for Donald Trump. 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. That is an improvement of three points over the 56% of people, of white women who voted for Mitt Romney. Uh, This is a massive problem. And this is actually one of the things that I've been, I'm working on a book right now about women, anger, and politics. And it's a book that, again, is about this contemporary moment, and in fact, really, women's anger in the wake of the election. And in the United States, a lot of that at the moment is being expressed as white women's anger in the wake of the election. And there is a dynamic that is very familiar in United States history of white women becoming angry, which is, we need that, right? So here's the tricky part. White women should have been angrier before November 8th, right? That was... <laughs> and so on the one hand, you're like, yes, white women, white women, <laughs> I know. <laughs> angry, right? Like this is, this is the correct, you should be angry. But there's also the thing where white women come and get angry and think that they invented anger. (laughs) And that's happening, too. And there's and you see that playing out around the I mean, it plays out every day on Twitter. It plays out in the dynamics around the organizing of the Women's March, you know, um, and and it's a very tricky thing because you need those women to be engaged. You need white women to vote. The in their own, not only in their own interests, fuck their own interests, in the interests of other people who need their support, in the interests of their sisters and their brothers. I mean, I'm sick of just talking about how, oh, we need to vote for our own interests. Women, white women have been voting, they think, in their own interests, in their racial interests, and for their, and for continued racial dominance. And so it's not about that. It's about looking around and seeing other people and voting on behalf of other people as well. And, you know, There are racial and power and economic and social incentives put in place. This is how if people, the United States is a minority rule country. White men have had an almost exclusive grip on economic, political, social, and sexual power in the United States for the history of the United States. The way that you maintain minority power is by setting a majority against itself. And so you create incentives for some people within that majority to benefit by supporting the power structure that's in place. You encourage anger between people who otherwise would work together to overthrow you. And that, that anger occurs naturally. It's not like white men who are telling, you know, telling women to be racist, right, and to alienate those who should be their allies, um, that's happening organically. (laughs) 
but there's an encouragement of it and a dependency by the by the minority white male rule that that's going to happen and divide a majority and that's how they stay in power. And that's this, I mean, when I think about the 53% of white women and the 56% of white women before them, and you know, the last time that women, white women voted Democratic was for Bill Clinton, who left the campaign trail to go home and execute Ricky Ray Rector. He said, Bill Clinton ran on an explicitly racist message of, I'm going to be a tough on crime president. And that's the last time that white women voted for a Democrat in 1992. They didn't even vote for him again in 1996. So, yes, I have thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> um, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, there's, there are moments when I go out, and it is, you know, I've been doing a lot of reporting, and I've been talking to white women. And those white women are really, like, engaged and educated about politics and local and national and state politics in ways I've never seen them before. And, and talking about things like intersectionality. And, <laughs> Not correctly, always, but often. <laughs> and but that's important, right? There's this. I am constantly at odds with myself about how I feel about this because it's like this has to happen. This should be happening. Um, but then you don't want to just give cookies to the people who are finally getting upset in the way that they should have always been upset. But you also don't want to scare them off by telling them, "Fuck you! You should have been angrier on November 7th. So this is a real, it's a moment of extreme tension with regard to this stuff. And I don't know what's going to happen. I look at the conversation that's happened over the past week around Harvey Weinstein. But, you know, this conversation happened in October of last year after the pussy tape. And look where it got us. And Anita Hill. Well, Anita Hill, so this is, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. I'm writing a story now about the women who are running for office. So Emily's List, since the election, has had 18,000 women call and want to run for office in the United States, which is unprecedented. And the thing that I think all the time about how this moment could theoretically, I have to stop in a minute, could theoretically um, echo what happened in 92. So in the wake of Anita Hill's testimony, in which she is not believed, in which Clarence Thomas is appointed to the court, this is long-lasting damage to our democracy. Like, the Anita Hill hearings are, to me, a fulcrum on which um, all kinds of American history turns. And Clarence Thomas is appointed to the court. It is a material loss. The Voting Rights Act is gutted, paving the way for a Donald Trump presidency, in part because Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court, right? It is a horrible loss. In the wake of that loss, women run for office in unprecedented numbers in 1992. It's very depressing. The great big win year of the woman was four women elected to Congress, four women elected to the Senate, including the first black woman ever elected to the Senate, Carol Mosley Brown. Uh, that was the big revolution. But it was a revolution. It really was. Um, I think 23 women were elected that year to the House. So part of me wonders if this isn't an echo of that moment or the other place in history where we see that talks to that moment, where there is a loss that is going to have long-term material consequences that already has life and death consequences for people. Um, but that if the response to that can produce a changed power structure. The problem is that the material consequences of these things can tamp down the power. So that, you know, gerrymandering, redistricting, the Voting Rights Act, this stuff is designed to keep even an angry and energized revolution at bay. 
And so we don't know yet what the answer is going to be. I hope that part of what we see, I, I, every day, I hope that this is, that we're going to look back on this as a moment of massive shift. But I don't know if the mechanisms will hold to permit that shift. I think we would. I think if we had fully democratic elections, I think if we had voter protections, um, this would be a moment of true, a true shift in power dynamics around all kinds of policy, around things like paid leave, around health care. I think this is a moment of clarity for the United States. But if the mechanisms aren't in place to permit that, that revolutionary response, then I don't know that we get what should be organically a turning point. So my question might be very Irish, but we had, you know, the Catholic Church of such control here and the history. And I was just wondering about people who became, women who became nuns and kind of uh-huh. shunned traditional marriage and yeah. picked a marriage to God. But then those women are marriage to Christ and those women became in charge of the Magdalene laundries where they punish single women mm. in Ireland for transgressions. And I was just wondering your thoughts on that whole kind of becoming a nun as a way of a certain, some kind of independence. Absolutely. And then them... Punishing the women. It was an off-ramp from marriage. I mean, that's not to say I'm sure many of the women who became nuns did so out of faith and a true desire to marry God. But it was also an off-ramp from marriage. And that was true That that was true in Ireland and, and in many Catholic countries. There was this sort of escape hatch. Um, and in fact, nuns in many eras have been political forces. I mean, that's the, the connection. And I don't know enough about the detailed history of... but. But nuns are, have in various countries and various times been their own kind of revolutionaries. But it is, think of the limits. Okay, so you create this, there's this escape hatch. But then it's such a limited existence. There, your liberties are contained in all kinds of ways. Um, and so political exertion actually is one of the things that is slightly open. But obviously no sexual liberty um, extremely lim- limited economic control. Um, and so the history, I, that's one of the things that I wanted to do more in my book, and I just did the, the history of, um, of the church, and specifically of nuns. Um, and, and that historically really was the major alternative to marriage for women. But again, it mirrors, it mirrors, it is, a marriage to God. It is still viewed as a marriage. You are still subordinate to a more powerful figure who is understood to be male. You are in service. Um, you are, your devotion is your, is supposed to be your driving force. And so it, it is both a disruptive option and one that still conforms to all kinds of attitudes about how ideal femininity is supposed to be conceived of. Yeah, the journey of the woman is incredible. And uh, I suppose we, 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 we've gained, we're in a position right now where we've gained a lot of political, economic and social justice. A study today that I heard is that, you know, women are remaining single. Yeah, because we were achieving, but also because there's been a paradigm shift in how men are treating women. Mm. Supposedly the bromance now is, is taking over from the friendship that a man wants with a woman and casual sex. Men almost don't need women anymore. So that is also a factor in women remaining single, that paradigm shift in our society. Again, another inequality perhaps. So very quickly, how um, spatially contingent is your argument that single women are 
capable of um, bringing about social change? Do you think it's a specific argument in the US or do you think it's more broadly applicable? Okay, two very different questions. Okay, the availability of sex. There actually was a big study that was published by some of the, the people I described as the sort of almost libertarian thinkers on marriage and poverty that got a lot of news last week. There's a guy named Brad Wilcox, um, and it was, oh, it was Mark Regnerus was the one who published this study that basically boiled down to why buy the cow if you get the milk for free. And um, so my response to the question about, like, well, if sex is readily available, then who will get married? If you're only getting married so that you can have sex, it's not, to my mind, this is not necessarily in a contemporary world, the stuff, the stuff that lifelong commitment necessarily has to be made of. And that if you can get sex, I mean, this is, again, it privileges marriage also as the pinnacle relationship. Whereas if you can, if you can have an active and satisfying sex life and you can have friendships and you can have romances and you can have, and there are all kinds of different paths that can weave around commitment, friendship, work, um, sex, in a million different configurations. And so for my, and this is strictly speaking for my purposes, I'm very concerned about economic stability, which I see the path being through increased government participation in supporting um, men and women of any marital status. Um, I don't care whether or not people are getting married. I mean, is that, is that a strange thing to say? I just don't care if they're having economically stable lives um, thanks in part, we hope, to the communities and and nations in which they're living. Um, I don't care whether they're having sex inside or outside of marriage or with 100 people or with no one or, you know, as long as they're, you know, have the most opportunity to have a liberated existence as, as, as possible. Um, the question of whether this is only about the United States, no. It's happening. I know that, I mean... This stems in part from the fact that the United States is where I'm most familiar with the history of social change. Um, this stuff, a lot of what I'm describing was certainly happening in Europe. One of the things you see happening in Europe during roughly the same years, um, there were all kinds of conversations uh, in England um, about surplus women who were unmarried because men were, you know, taking over the world and uh, would we ship them to Australia um, where they would become wives. Um, one of the things you see in contemporary life is that, and I'm not sure yet about that, the political impact it's going to have, but in countries like Japan, there is a crisis. There is actually a birth rate crisis. Um, men and women, some, in fact, some of the countries that are experiencing the biggest crises in birth rates um, are countries that have the most rigid gender roles. So where hetero power structures are inflexible, people are simply abstaining from marriage. And not only that, in some places, I mean, there are lot, there's lots of reporting coming out of Japan about men and women no longer even dating. Um, and that, that actually does create a problem. But one of the things that it does is it puts pressure on governments. I mean, this is, and you can see this in Germany, in Japan, places where there's pressure on governments to better support and on societies to better support more egalitarian policies. Now, the success or failure of those policies, I just don't know the ins and outs of what countries are passing what laws at this point, but there are conversations around them. I was in Italy this time last year, and of course, Italy had a terrible problem. Uh, again, a lot of these are countries with 
For example, lengthy histories of the Catholic Church having tremendous power and very rigid gender roles within the Catholic Church. Italy is a great example of this. There was a marriage crisis, and the term mamones, um, which is mama's boys, men in Italy over the past couple of decades who weren't marrying because the generation of working women who were available to them wouldn't do their laundry or cook their meals, and instead were kind of living with their moms who, was, who were still doing the cooking and cleaning for them. And this was a, this, there was a lot of reporting about that. When I was in Italy last year, it's still a big problem. Marriage rates are way, way down in Italy. They've kind of crashed. Um, but one of the things that I was told anecdotally is that the people who are getting married are the feminist men. Um, and in fact, I just sort of saw this. This is, this is very unscientific, this observation. Yeah. But, but when I was in Italy this time last year, all the babies I saw, and I've been told, like, oh, if you bring a baby to Italy, everybody will follow all over it because there are so few babies. All the babies I saw were being pushed by men in strollers. Um, the, the Scandinavian countries, which have better uh, sort of, I mean, whether they're pro-natalist policies or not, they obviously have the strongest safety nets. Um, and while they have low marriage rates, they've remained relatively constant compared to the places that had very high marriage rates. And then in a post um, post-feminist era, the marriage rates have plummeted. Places like Italy, Germany, Japan, the United States. Um, the Scandinavian countries, with their better social and economic supports, um, their marriage rates, which have always been low, have stayed sort of constant. And there's one figure that a child born in the United States uh, to a married parents has a higher chance of having those parents break up than a child born in Norway to unmarried parents. Um, there's actually tremendous family stability in those countries with better economic policies. So I can't walk you through the history of how single women have been the actors or the organizers, but I can say that the, marriage, the family structure and the ways in which family structure and marriage rates are intimately tied to women's liberation, women's increased participation in the workforce, increased educational levels, um, those are having an effect on countries' economies in ways that those countries are going to have to respond to. And, and it's, all, it's not a, always a happy story. I also want to stress that. I mean, look at, some of the, look at some of the stories of the terrorism enacted against women around the world who are getting educations and going into, wor into workforces and who are exercising sexual liberty. I mean, this is not all a happy, clappy story of women's liberation and a constant move forward. There is, I mean, we are living in a period of tremendous backlash that includes murder and, and women getting shot and kidnapped. Um, but I, I do think it's fair to say that this is happening all around the world and whether or not you can write the same story of it, single women who are driving it, it's certain that women living differently than they have historically and living outside of that institution that has defined them for so long is crucially important to the health, um, and economies of countries all over the world. Thank you very much again for coming and... Thank you so much.